This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners this week, we have one of the foremost experts on value-based care and payment model transformation, David Muelstein, PhD, JD, Chief Research and Innovation Officer for Health Management Associates or HMA is joining us this week. I mean, this is someone who um, has been a supporter of our work at Race to Value and the Institute. He's responsible and widely known for his uh, research and supporting strategic planning and innovation. His research and expertise centers on healthcare payment and delivery transformation and understanding healthcare markets and evaluating how the broader healthcare system is changing. I mean, this is someone who's a self-identified data nerd. Uh, he regularly speaks and writes about healthcare system evolution. He joined uh, HMA via its acquisition with Levitt Partners, where he was the chief strategy and uh, chief research officer. Additionally, he is a visiting policy fellow at the Margolis Center for Health Policy at Duke University. As I mentioned uh, earlier, he's been a longtime supporter of our work here at the Institute for Advancing Health Value. In this episode, you're going to learn so much uh, in terms of the broader alternative payment model landscape and the speed of uptake and accountable care. We talk about the growth plateau in ACOs and what CMS is working on to catalyze adoption of risk-based payment. We discuss health equity redesign and payment models, analytics associated with that work. Uh, we talk about the intersection of Medicare Advantage and health equity, the integration of specialists into accountable care, multi-payer alignment. And we also talk about price transparency and the new primary care payment model called Making Care Primary, which was just recently announced. So if you want to know Everything there is pretty much on the value-based care movement. This is an episode you definitely don't want to miss. And we appreciate your support of Race to Value. Uh, definitely uh, uh, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at racetovalue.org forward slash newsletter. So you get a weekly email that, that gives you updates on our current content so you don't miss an episode. And we appreciate, again, your support. Feel free to leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts and Without further delay, let's now hear from David Muelstein as he joins us this week on the Race to Value. 
David, welcome to the Race to Value. Wow, it's awesome to have you on this week. You've been a guest on our prospect list for quite some time. You've been a valued contributor and supporter of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative, now the Institute for Advancing Health Value for quite some time. I mean, I think almost a decade since we've been, since we were founded. And I just want to extend my appreciation, not only for your support, but your ongoing research and advocacy and um, evangelization around this important movement to value-based care. Such a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks, Eric. It's really a pleasure to join you and to talk a little bit about value. Well, David, I thought we would start with the value movement itself. I mean, accountable care has been at the center of the evolution and debate around healthcare payment and delivery, you know, moving from this fee-for-service to value-based care model for almost two decades now. And the pace of scaling this payment model transformation is it's really been glacial and incremental. I mean, CMS did recently reaffirm its goal of speeding up the uptake of accountable care. And, you know, as most of our listeners know, they aim to give all Medicare beneficiaries and half of Medicaid beneficiaries access to coordinated longitudinal care through these accountable care relationships by 2030. I mean, that's the big goal. This represents a substantial acceleration in the pace of accountable care growth in the U.S. I mean, right now we're sitting at accountable care contracts, uh, around 40% of uh, U.S. health insurance payments. Most of those are in shared savings arrangements that still largely involve fee-for-service. Needless to say, this is really a challenging time for the value movement as the industry's reeling from the disruptive impact of the pandemic. I mean, with provider organizations facing a combination of supply chain disruptions, labor shortages, high inflation, the end of COVID-19 relief payments, most are struggling just dealing with staffing and financial challenges. And that complicates the investments and care reforms in the short term. And in this tight economic environment, I mean, healthcare organizations are really careful now about this, having a clear path to return on investment for their financial decisions. And that includes decisions about advancing accountable care. And David, I know you're really involved just in your role in research and your uh, work in health policy. I mean, as you know, CMS is really aware of this innovator's dilemma. And, you know, they had a strategy refresh a couple of years ago. You know, they're talking about this comprehensive set of reforms that are going to build on the foundation of advanced accountable primary care and get this uptake and APM adoption. So David, I just wanted to ask you as one of the leading researchers and innovative thinkers in the value movement, what's your take on this bold goal for us to reach critical mass and accountable care in juxtaposition to some of the broader economic challenges facing the industry? I mean, as we're careening toward insolvency in the Medicare trust fund, do you sense that the economic imperative will ultimately find its way to meaningful health policy to drive payment reform at scale? It's a great question. And there's a lot of different dynamics with there. And so maybe I'll start just looking at kind of the overall trends, talking about what I've seen with that, um, and then talking about what the current economic environment is indicates for um, the adoption of value. So you know, we saw in early years of accountable care growth. So this is back through uh, 2010s. There was fairly consistent and significant growth year over year. Um, the last three plus years, it has basically plateaued. And this is both in the number of ACOs and the number of lives that are covered under these, what I consider, uh, you know, a risk-based model where you're actually responsible for the total cost of care. 
And that doesn't mean that it has been stagnant. Um, it's not like you just grew to a certain number and that's how many ACOs have been there. But what we've seen is that now the number of new entrants and those that are leaving the model are about equal. And so that's why we've kind of plateaued and, and been somewhat stagnant. So that's kind of the situation. And one of the major drivers that you uh, indicated is just the economics of this. And I think one of the major issues that we don't talk about enough is the business model of what it really means to operate under a value-based arrangement. And so I think it's useful to think about what goes into a business model. And there's lots of different components about who's there and, and what's what that involves. So the first one is what is the value proposition that you have? So what is it that you're generating? And the second one that's related to that is who is your customer? So what value are you providing for that customer? Then once you know that, there are a bunch of different components that go into the business model. There is your payment mechanism, and that's everything about how you get paid, whether it's upfront payments or retrospective payments or all sorts of other things that can happen. Uh, and then how fast you get paid, how it's your turnover and revenue and, and things like that. The next one then is your unique capabilities that you have. Um, and so this is your people, it's your facilities, um, it's everything that you that you're basically bringing to the table to help generate the value. Uh, and the last one is your unique approaches or processes that you have. So when you think of a healthcare system, they have a business model and they say, who are we serving and who is our customer and what is the value that we are providing them? And I'll use a hospital as an example. And you'd say, uh, it's kind of a loaded question, but you can go to a hospital executive and you can ask them and say, who is your customer? And the off-the-cuff answer is always the patient. Then they start to think about it a little bit more and they say, well, maybe it's the insurance company because the insurance company is the one who's actually paying the bills. And so, yes, you are treating the patient and they are a client, but the ultimate customer may be the insurance company. Others will say, well, actually, no, who we're really going after is the semi-independent hospital or physicians or physician practices that are driving the recruitment of patients that are coming to the hospital. Because if you don't have the physicians bringing the patients who then have the insurance, then you're not gonna be able to put heads in beds. And so it's kind of muddled because it's not really clear who their client is. The kind of general business model of the fee-for-service system is built around a really simple plan. The idea is that you say, let's identify the well-reimbursed services, then let's build capacity so that we can do a lot of those, and then let's fill that capacity. And that's how fever service has operated for a very long time. It's a reason why it's more competitive to become an orthopedic surgeon than to become a pediatrician coming out of medical school, because you get paid more for the same amount of time that you spend on those problems. And so that's historically how the healthcare system has evolved, is built around what I call a capacity-focused worldview or business model. Let's now think about what goes into the alternative or the value-based model. Under a value-based model, uh, particularly ACOs or other population-based models, you take responsibility for the cost and quality outcomes of a defined population. Then you build services and interventions to address whatever the needs are of that population. And so different populations are going to have different needs. You're going to address them in different ways. But in all approaches, you're trying to reduce the utilization of high-cost services. 
because under value-based model, high cost services are really what, what hurts the bottom line. And that is the exact opposite of the fee-for-service business model. And the fee-for-service business model, the high cost services are what drive your bottom line as opposed to hurting your, your bottom line. And so that conflict is what I see plays out time and again with organizations that are trying to move toward value. They say from a philosophical, conceptual, mission-driven perspective, they like what value-based care promises it entails. On the practical side of it, they have created a system where they have core clients and value proposition, and they have facilities and staffing and systems and processes that are really optimized for the fee-for-service model. So an example of this is how do you manage patients? Okay. What does that even mean? Well, if you are talking about it from a capacity focused worldview or business model, it's all about how do you increase the number of patients that are coming? How do you recruit them? How do you make sure they're there? How do you get them in and then get them out as quickly as possible? That's where the patient comes into contact with you is at the facility. That's when you begin the relationship. Under the value-based model, you need to do everything in advance. You need to build relationships, use primary care and advanced primary care techniques to um, be able to eliminate the need for these high-cost services. And so where you're engaging with them is very different. What you need from an EMR is very different. EMR under fee-for-service is primarily for billing. You may need to make sure that all of the appropriate boxes are checked and codes are put in there in the note so that you can appropriately bill and get reimbursed. Under a value base, particularly a perspective or capitated model, your focus to use the EMR system is for managing patient populations to be able to identify and segment those that have the most needs and then go and try to address what those needs are proactively. And so when you get down into the details of, of what you do to optimize fee-for-service versus optimizing value, you find that there is relatively little overlap. And so the challenge that I see for organizations that are trying to move toward value, and they, they're doing it for the right reasons. They say, this is better for our patients. This is what we want to do in the long run. This fulfills our, our mission. But they're running into the reality that it's very hard to change business model. You have your EMR, you have your culture, you have your incentive plans, you have uh, your facilities, all of those have been optimized around this alternative business model. And so that's what I'm viewing is organizations have struggled with. And when times were kind of booming pre-pandemic and we we're having a, a growth economy and there was relatively easy credit and uh, finances were generally good across the board for healthcare providers, I said, let's experiment with this. Let's try to make investments. Let's try to do things. And while it was still a minority of the total care, they were willing to put money at that and try to build new divisions within their institution or, or recruit people in a new way or create new programs that were really around that value-based care model. Well, then the pandemic came. And obviously, there was a reduction in volume of revenue during the pandemic. And now we've had significant crunch as it relates to finances for a variety of reasons. Obviously, higher interest rates, uh, raise of salaries, and just the cost of, of doing business. And what we've seen is these organizations that have been experimenting with value have gone back when times are rough to their core business model. They go back to saying, how do we optimize our core model that keeps the lights on. 
And so when you go in and you say, what are they buying? What are they looking at? An example of this was the HIMSS conference this year. Before the pandemic at Hims, there were lots and lots of vendors that had value-based solutions. And it was all about how do you manage populations? How do you start to do this using technology? This year, it was revenue cycle management and AI-driven revenue cycle management, um, one step beyond that. And this is because when times are rough, people revert to the lowest common denominator that is their underlying business model. And so that's really the challenge that I've seen in recent years is that organizations that would like to transform are struggling to do so because their business model is almost kind of a, a weight around their neck that pulls them back towards the, the capacity-focused worldview. Well, David, you mentioned earlier the anemic growth of ACOs over the last few years, and I wanted to you know talk with you about that for a little bit. I mean, as of late 2022, you know, there are 483 Medicare ACOs serving 11 million beneficiaries. Since 2010, we've had more than 1,200 organizations that have had some type of ACO contract in Medicare, Medicaid, or the commercial sector serving millions of additional patients. And after years of steady ACO growth, I mean, as you mentioned, we're seeing this, this plateau or this slight decline. And this is most likely, you know, a result of the policies that are tightening the ACO requirements and downside risk. And it's led to dropouts, especially among organizations that have joined ACO programs but weren't heavily committed. And the Medicare Shared Savings Program or the MSSP has been the flagship ACO program uh, with CMS. And that's certainly the bellwether uh, for the value movement. But it's not, and it's now in its fifth consecutive year having generated net positive savings to CMS while simultaneously reporting, you know, high quality performance for its participants. And for the last performance year, although down from 4.1 billion in 2020, I mean, ACOs have collectively reduced Medicare expenditures by, you know, an impressive 3.6 billion in 2021. I mean, that's compared to the, the, program's benchmark spending goal and the overall drop in savings, you know, I, as I understand, it's been, it's resulted partially from this reduced ACO participation. We had 38 fewer ACOs than in 2020. And, you know, with nearly 60% of these MSSP ACOs and two-sided risk, it seems like we were, you know, on the right side of the adoption curve and ACOs were positioned for continued growth. But obviously, you know, as you mentioned, it isn't happening. And, the number of ACOs is only modestly increased uh, in 2022. You know, as we're seeing, David, these multiple years of flat or declining ACO growth, you know, I'm just as a someone that's really behind this value movement, you know, I'm really concerned about that. And I just wanted to ask you about this trend and, and you know, whether or not that's putting in jeopardy this publicly stated goal of having every Medicare fee-for-service beneficiary in an accountable care relationship by 2030. I mean, should we be concerned with this lack of growth in the MSSP and with Medicare spending continuing to rise to out-of-control levels and ACOs actually proving that they can effectively increase quality and lower spending? I mean, what do you think policymakers should be doing to increase the size of these ACO programs in traditional Medicare? Yeah, great question. So first, I'll, I'll talk about the savings because obviously they have been positive savings in recent years. So Pandemic years are always difficult to grapple with because the changes in volume really did impact some of those outcomes. But even before the pandemic, we saw positive results that were coming from the participants. Question though is what 
and how positive are those? Um, you know, if you kind of average it out for recent years, even including some of the, the better pandemic years, it's about 1% relative to the projected benchmark. So what the general model is, is that CMS projects how much they expect the population to cost. And then they say, if you're able to go above it, you're going to pay a penalty. If you go below it, then you're going to receive the bonus. That's the general idea of shared savings. And it has been, after accounting for bonus payments, about a 1% net savings for Medicare. Now, Medicare is continuing to grow at a much higher than 1% amount. And so this is still year-over-year year increases in the cost of care. But 1% is a whole lot better than a 1% increase in cost, for example. And so it's positive, but it's not transformative yet. And the reason for this is they talk about you know, bending the curve. And this is significantly slowing the rate of the growth of costs over time to the point that it really uh, makes the, the trust fund sustainable. And so far, the shared savings program has not been able to go to that level. Now, all of the results that we've seen have been great. They've been productive, but there needs to be changes if it's going to be sufficient to really address those cost concerns. And I think that's the challenge that policymakers grapple with is that the more quote unquote onerous the program design is, the less likely people are going to participate because it is a voluntary program. And so if you want to move more Medicare beneficiaries to a longitudinal care coordination program, like a, like one of the ACOs, then you need to make the program more inviting or enticing to participants, which means that you're probably going to decrease the amount of risk they have, which decreases the likelihood that it's going to achieve the cost outcomes that are intended. And so that's that balancing act about what are you going to focus on? Do you really want to create models that are going to drive down Medicare costs? Because generally providers are going to be less happy with those and less likely to participate. Or do you want to create a broad panel of those that are participating? In that case, you need to make it as flexible as possible. So obviously CMS has intimated that they want to move toward this. And so I can think of a couple of different ways that they're going to be able to do it. So one model is that they continue to encourage and incentivize people to enter into these programs, initially making them less onerous with less risk, with less chance of, of owing money back to CMS. And then over time, either making those programs mandatory or making them harder for people to leave and starting to, at that point, five years, 10 years down the road, starting to ratchet down um, the flexibility and making it so that it's more likely to save money. So that's one approach that they can do. The other approach that I think is going to happen, um, actually, I think both of these approaches will happen to a certain extent, but the second one is where you expand the definition of what you include under these value-based arrangements or what you would consider being success in terms of moving Medicare beneficiaries away from, from strict fee-for-service. And this is what we're seeing with the growth of all of the different models that are starting to come from CMS. And we've seen uh, lots of different ones that are are coming out. So it's not just ACOs and full population-based models. It's the primary cares first. It's the renal models. It's the mom's models. What they do is try to create a bunch of different programs that do have components of value within them. 
and then incentivize providers to participate in those. Now, that has the same challenge often from the cost side as the shared savings program, but it has the benefit of creating new models that are available for participants to work with. And so uh, I think that over time, what you'll see is that CMS is going to have to expand their definition of what it includes to be successful to, to meet their goals, but they will do that and they will continue to expand these um, other models that, that aren't population-based necessarily, but do have components of value. Well, David, as we're talking about priorities for CMS right now and gaining traction with the value movement, I wanted to engage you also on this moral imperative to advance health equity. I mean, equity now, after you know, a nearly as, over a century, and you know, systemic inequities, we're finally you know stating it as a priority. You know, CMS is behind this. You know, uh, there's. Uh, support agency-wide at HHS. I mean, CMS centers are coordinating to extend equity-focused components and ACO reach and other efforts to advance payment and care reform in Medicare and Medicaid. And we're also seeing private payers implementing equity-focused accountable care reforms. And as most models embedding equity and value-based payment are new, I mean, there are several aspects that are posing adoption challenges I mean, providers are they're still struggling, for example, to capture or access reliable and trusted data on socioeconomic status and social needs, which generally isn't available or widely used at an individual level. Similarly, many ACOs are taking organizational steps aiming to improve health equity. I mean, the explicit inclusion of equity and financial or quality performance measures is nascent. I mean, we're trying to figure out like an ACO reach, for example, like what role these health equity plans play. And as CMS is striving to make equity measurement ubiquitous in all of these accountable care models over time, starting with reach, I mean, this redesign, you know, has to ensure also that safety net providers can be successful in accountable care models. And we're currently experiencing a safety net deficit in accountable care, and we need more resources available for upfront investments in accountable care adoption that can address social drivers of health. So, David, I wanted to see if you could provide our listeners with an update on payment model reforms that are taking place to advance health equity, including maybe what's happening at the state level also with some of these Medicaid plans. I mean, how are accountable care organizations need to evolve in their sophistication to address systemic health inequities with their most marginalized patient communities to which they serve? Yeah, another great and deep question. So one of the things that I think is important to note with CMS is what are they focused on? Now, you talked about this. They're, they have reiterated their goal of moving providers toward these value-based models. They are also talking about equity. Um, actually, with their strategic plan, they've got a variety of other things that are there. And so there is a um, there is always an opportunity to kind of read between the lines and say, what is CMS really, really focused on? And uh, this goes back to kind of a theory of strategy. And you'll, you'll notice that I'll come back to like the theory of how things work and what people are trying to accomplish. So strategy, I view it as the art of making trade-offs and deciding what you're not going to do. And organizations that try to do everything, usually be, they end up in the muddled middle and they don't have a clear strategy. They don't have a clear perspective or, or, or place within the market. 
And right now I'm sensing some of that where CMS says, well, what we really want to do is everything. We want to improve equity. We want to improve quality. We want to lower costs. And we're going to do that all at the same time. It's really hard to kill two birds with one stone. And so what you try to read between the lines and say, what are they really focused on right now? And, and where do we expect them or to be meaningful changes? And, you know, looking back at this, 10 or 20 years from now, what do we think that the, the CMS or HHS under this administration will kind of be known for? And I think that equity really is going to be that. I don't want to say that they're not worried about quality and they're not worried about lowering the cost of care. I think their bigger concern is with addressing equity. And this is certainly a major challenge that has existed for a very long time um, in American healthcare and is not going to be solved within this generation. So given that I believe that that is going to be CMS's primary um, impact over this during this administration, how are they doing it is what you asked. And they're doing it in a lot of different ways. Um, one of those is they continue to focus on it and make sure that whenever they're creating new programs, new models, evaluations, they're always bringing in that equity lens. Now, an important thing to, to define is what does it really mean for health equity and what are they looking at? First, inequity basically means that there are differences that come from across populations, from across individuals. And we know that. Just like uh, there are different outcomes for people that um, have otherwise similar health status, uh, that's why we do randomized trials and try to understand what those different things are. There are also inequitable things that are driven by socioeconomic status, by racial status, by uh, a variety of other metrics. And so one of the challenges is just being able to understand what those are. And so that's one of the things that CMS has focused on is trying to do a better job at measuring and identifying what the opportunities are, uh, because if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. And the data that we've worked with for years and years with Medicare uh, based on enrollment data that relates to uh, race and ethnicity and poverty and all of these other things is limited. It's incorrect often. And so how do we improve that data? How do we start to capture that? In general, providers, ACOs, other, others really want to have the best possible outcomes for their patients. That is a goal. That's why people go into healthcare. And so understanding where people are not having the same outcomes and what those challenges are, I think is the first step to, to making some of these changes. But what I think what we're going to see um, is that continued focus. That's the drumbeat we'll hear again and again, uh, but starting with the measurement side and how do we evaluate it? How do we quantify it? And how do we track it so that we can see what those changes are and what some of those, those real opportunities are? Well, David, in terms of health equity transformation, it seems that Medicare Advantage is really a, a viable path forward as well. I mean, late last year, you wrote an article for Health Affairs that discussed how MA is chosen by the majority of minority and low-income beneficiaries, and we're seeing over 60% of minority dual eligibles on an MA plan, while over 50% of minority non-dual eligibles are also enrolled in an MA plan. And it seems to me that you know Medicare Advantage simply is too big to ignore, both in terms of enrollment and economic and clinical outcomes as an impact lever, especially for underserved populations. I mean, we're seeing this explosive growth trajectory, and it's over 50% now of eligible Medicare beneficiaries in an MA plan. You know, I've heard projections upwards of 70 to 80% enrollment of all eligible Medicare beneficiaries over the next decade. And we see that 
trajectory coupled with the silver tsunami of the aging baby boomers. I mean, it, it seems to me that MA is really an attractive vehicle for accountable care just based on the sheer magnitude of market penetration. And moreover, you know, we also have evidence that, you know, these MA plans are delivering better economic and clinical outcomes because of risk-based payment models and then the provider-centric innovation that, that can take place to deliver some of these SDOH interventions in high-risk patient populations. So, David, uh, I wanted to see if you could provide your perspective on how Medicare Advantage is positioned in the overall accountable care landscape. I mean, what's the potential for the program in terms of improving even more on clinical and economic outcomes in senior populations, especially those in the underserved and marginalized communities? Yeah, thanks for mentioning that paper. So it was a uh, it's very interesting to see the breakdown of how uh, growth in Medicare Advantage has varied based on kind of the either if somebody's a racial minority or if they're dual eligible. And as you mentioned, a majority of dual eligibles and minorities are enrolled in Medicare Advantage. And so over the past decade, they have seen significantly more growth than those that are white non-duals. And so the the question, it raises a whole bunch of questions and, and policy issues. The first policy issue is that because of the concerns of equity and the reality that a majority of those that are of primary import for CMS, those that are low income and those that are minorities, are under Medicare Advantage, this drives the impetus for CMS to focus on this subset of the population. And they have a very different mechanisms that they have to influence Medicare Advantage policy than they do for traditional fee-for-service. They have less access to the patients, they have less data, they have a longer lag time before they get access to, to data. And so that's going to be something that this administration really needs to figure out is how do you address equity through Medicare Advantage in a way that doesn't hurt the program and doesn't hurt those that are enrolling within it. This raises then some questions of why are people enrolling in this program? Why are minorities and dual eligibles going toward Medicare Advantage? Uh, and that is something that we frankly do not have full data on. Uh, I've heard a lot of different ideas and a lot of different anecdotes. But the reality is that we don't yet know why these beneficiaries are all choosing it. And we don't yet also have great data that really does a good job of comparing the outcomes from this. Now, there have been studies that have looked at outcomes, and there have been lots of things that have been uh, done to try to disentangle both the cost and the quality side of MA versus traditional fee-for-service, but it's pretty messy. And putting on my research hat, I would say that I don't feel that there is really strong evidence to suggest that Medicare Advantage consistently has better outcomes than traditional fee-for-service. And if you ask MedPAC, they would say that even or that once you adjust for the underlying health differences between the populations, Medicare Advantage costs more than traditional fee-for-service does. The MA plans will argue against that, um, but there's a there's a bunch of, of competing studies that are there about what's what's really the truth. One of the things that we do know, though, with Medicare Advantage is that it can be cheaper for the beneficiary. And the reason for this is there can be additional services. So, for example, having dental included within it or having a single plan that also includes your prescription drug benefit 
with lower monthly co-pays than you would get if you went through um, just signing up for Part D by yourself and then going with fee-for-service for Part A and Part B. And so there is a strong incentive. And I think the incentive that, that really drives most patients toward this is the availability to get these services at a lower price point. And obviously the companies that are running MA plans are making a lot of money. That's why they continue to invest in this. For example, Humana leaving the commercial market and doubling down on MA. There is a, a driving force for people to go after Medicare Advantage um, and because it's profitable and patients are obviously, or beneficiaries enjoy it. But there goes to be that challenge of how does CMS make sure that those that are enrolled in it are being treated equitably, that the outcomes are expected, that, that they're really getting everything that they pay for. So when I summarize Medicare Advantage, I, I think of it as this way, is that it uh, once upon a time was a complete black box. Um, now it is a black box that you've opened up like one flap and it's still pretty dark inside, but we're just starting to learn a little bit more about. But there is still a lot that we don't know about how Medicare Advantage works, why people are moving toward it, what the challenges are, what the opportunities are. But I think that's definitely going to have to be addressed in coming years from a policy perspective and also from a data evaluation and research perspective, because so many of these beneficiaries are, are moving there. Well, David, another key challenge that I wanted to discuss with you is how do we integrate specialty care and engage specialist providers in accountable care I mean, although specialists account for the vast majority of healthcare spending, especially for patients with serious health conditions, they haven't been directly engaged in many of these accountable care models. I mean, specialists and hospitals do participate in bundle payment models for hospital and major procedure episodes, and we see these centers of excellence programs that are also largely focused on common elective procedures and coordinated care models for advanced chronic uh, kidney disease, for example, but these models largely do not provide incentives and support for engagement in chronic disease management with the goal of preventing disease progression and avoiding hospitalizations and major procedures. And we clearly need to find a way for more inclusivity and engagement of these specialist and value-based purchasing models in order to align the financial incentives for coordinated longitudinal care for some of these uh, common conditions that we see in that space, like musculoskeletal disorders and cardiovascular diseases and things like that. And we also need to shift the provider landscape, I think, towards more of these integrated practice units that can serve as advanced models of excellence and specialized procedures. And, you know, CMS has announced a strategy to implement short and long-term steps to better engage specialists and longitudinal coordinated accountable care models. But, you know, there are many in the industry, as you know, that are skeptical. And that and this really does seem to be the eternal question in the value movement. You know, how do we get the specialists involved? So I wanted to get your take on that, Dave. And I mean, should we expect to see more mandatory payment models involving specialty care in the years to come? I mean, what else can be done in the specialty arena to enable accountable care, not only to improve care for procedural hospitalization, but also to support accountable care for some of these common serious chronic conditions? Definitely an ongoing challenge is how do you get the specialists? And, you know, there's some specialists that can fit within value-based models pretty clearly, but the proceduralists, those that primarily are, are operating or doing other things where they have short interactions with patients, 
those are the ones that are, are really challenging. So going back to kind of the healthcare and how do you subdivide it? Uh, there's a bunch of different ways that you can look at the the components of care, but what's useful for me is to put it in three broad categories. So one is chronic care. So this is where you're taking care of ongoing issues or ongoing management relationship that's going to be longitudinal for years or decades that, that can happen. Second one is urgent or emergency care. So what happens when there is an acute illness or issue that needs to be addressed? How do you approach that and how do you try to, to address it in the, the best way possible? And then the third category of care is what I put under as scheduled or elective care. So this is where you can have procedures, for example, you know you need to have one, but depending on the procedure, maybe you've got a few days to a few years to decide when you're going to get it. And for each of those different types of care, chronic, emergency, or scheduled, you have different ways that you can effectively work with the providers who can then work with the patients. And I think the specialists largely fall under that third category. And those are the ones that are, are very difficult to include under traditional value-based models. And the reason for that is that they are not a service that is expected to be used on a regular basis. There is a need to identify the procedures, the specialists that fit with under that, and then create models that incentivize improvement from that perspective. So an example of this is bundled payments. So under a traditional fee-for-service model, you're just getting paid whatever the negotiated rate is. So if you're a surgeon, you're getting paid X number of dollars in the hospital, anesthesia, maybe physical therapy. They're all going to, to build their own amounts. And so as long as they can be profitable under whatever amount they're individually getting paid, there's really no incentive to to track the costs or to lower the costs. And there's certainly no incentive to evaluate the quality. When you create these bundled arrangements, though, you can force all of these different parties, the anesthesiologist, the facility, and the surgeon, and, and everybody that's involved to start to plan together and to apportion payments in a way that makes sense for that organization or that group. But you're also able to evaluate the quality and then you collectively receive either benefit or the penalty of poor performance and poor quality. Now, under these episodic-based payment models, you can certainly incentivize better costs um, in terms of being more efficient. You can also certainly definitely address the quality side of it because there's penalties um, if people are not generating the outcomes that are expected. But it's really hard to try to reduce the volume of services. And that, I think, is the innate challenge with it is that as a proceduralist, you get paid for doing procedures. That is your innate business model. And it's really hard to move towards something that's focused on the collective needs of the population. And so where I think there's a big opportunity here is to distinguish between the diagnostics and the procedures. So oftentimes you have the same doctor will diagnose the problem who is also going to be performing that surgery. A different approach is where you could have a value-based model where you include specialists that are trained in whatever that specialty may be, and their responsibility is to do the diagnosing. So for example, you could have an orthopedic surgeon who is no longer performing surgeries, but is seeing the patients has significant experience about when they need procedures and when they don't, when they should go to physical therapy, when uh, they should be treated medicinally. And they'll say, this patient now, we've we've tried treating them, 
uh, with physical therapy. We've given them a series of pharmaceuticals and anti-inflammatories. Um, but now it's the point where they are, it's time for them to receive a procedure. At that point, you can then send them over to the proceduralists and incentivize them through a bundled arrangement. That way, those that are doing the procedures don't have the incentive to try to get people to have surgeries that don't really need them. Um, but you're also able to continue to incentivize them so that when they do that procedure, they will be as effective, um, as efficient as possible with the best possible outcomes. And so I think that's where there is an opportunity is recognize where the proceduralists really fit better under being or operating as proceduralists and give them the, the incentives through bundled payments to coordinate the care during that, that episode, but take the diagnosis and the referrals out of their hands in a way that really has those that are risk-based that are helping to make those decisions of when those, those procedures are really needed. Well, David, in, in this race to value, one of the other things that I know is being talked about is, you know, how do we develop this clearer pathway for multi-payer alignment to reduce administrative burdens and increase the impact of accountable care reforms and lack of alignment across these foundational elements complicates the evidence base for accountable care. I mean, challenging the drive, you know, toward value in the long term. And the key opportunities here, as I understand, are, you know, standardizing performance measures and reporting and data standards and measures to support equity initiatives and payment model components like attribution and benchmarking and interoperability support for key data use cases. Alignment, I know, is a key part of the CMS accountable care strategy, and that's reflected in their support of the Healthcare Payment Learning Action Network or LAN, or the LAN. And uh, the LAN state transformation collaboratives are supporting initiatives in multiple states to accelerate alignment across Medicare, Medicaid, and commercial accountable care through activities that can be extended nationwide. And CMS is also working on multi-payer alignment within its own accountable care programs, including uh, on quality measures. I mean, for example, where they proposed in contract year 2024, uh, Medicare Advantage rule change to its star ratings program to align it with other Medicare accountable care programs. So, David, I, I just wanted to ask you if you could provide our listeners with an update on how we're progressing towards this goal of multi-payer alignment in accountable care. I mean, is it realistic to expect that we'll eventually have more widespread coordination and collaboration among multiple payers, such as private insurers and government programs to support ACOs in achieving their goals? It is a great question, and it is something that I've been advocating for for a very long time, and CMS obviously has been pushing that as well with their agenda. The challenge is that, well, I'll just say the state of, uh, of affairs right now is that we're not very far along. There are not a lot of great examples where there's strong multi-payer alignment, though there is a need for it. From a business perspective, if all of your payers are operating under different paradigms with different payment models, then it's really hard to transform your business. It's just one more barrier for an organization to adjust their business model and move toward that value-based model. The reality, though, is that when you try to bring payers together, they rarely have a sufficiently common incentive that will justify them creating models that really are aligned with each other. And it's 
the reality of the different models that the payers are working under. So for example, if you're a TPA, even though you might have millions of lives that you are um, helping to manage, you have very different incentives than if you are a full indemnity insurer. If you are working with a relatively young commercial population that has workers and young families, for example, it's going to be very different to create models that have a sufficient overlap with the CMS models that it really is going to make sense to, to create um, some sort of common model. An example of this is advanced primary care. There is a very strong business case to be made that many Medicare beneficiaries would benefit by operating under an advanced primary care practice where people are really trying to identify and identify what those needs are and proactively get services and care to prevent the high cost services down the road. Well, when you're working with a younger population, you don't have a strong business model to incentivize that same level of care because the vast majority of patients don't need it. And the cost, the ROI would not be there if you're trying to provide those, those same advanced care services for that population. And so there has been this challenge where there is sufficient overlap between all of those needs that it makes sense for people to work together. An example of this is the Core Quality Measures Collaborative. So five years ago, AHIP, so America's Health Insurance Plans and CMS and the National Quality Forum got together and said, let's create a voluntary multi-stakeholder effort to create common quality measures that will be, you know, it's basically so that if you're going to be measuring something, if you're going to be me measuring A1C levels, it's going to be consistent across all of these different payers. Well, they did that and they released all of their different common measures and nobody uses them exactly as they are. They take the common measures and then they adjust them for what the needs are for their population. And if we can't get to the point where we have common quality measures, it's just kind of indicative of the challenge to get to where we have common cost or payment models that are there. So there continues to be a need, but there are major barriers for that to play out. I can think of two different ways for it to, to start to play out in practice. One of those is a very heavy-handed top-down approach where it basically becomes mandatory for people to have common models. That would be pushed against very hard uh, if it were to go, because it would have to come through Congress and it would be pushed back against very hard. And I actually think it would be unlikely to be very successful because it would be one size fits nobody and everybody is unhappy with whatever those programs are. The other way opportunity where I think there is a little bit more chance for uh, multi-payer alignment to happen is where you start with common populations and really subset your efforts around those where you have the same population that's covered by different people. So an example of this might not be multi-payer alignment, including CMS, but it might be where you have examples of it that could include you know, a United or an Aetna plus the blues that's in the market where they create a common model, even though they are uh, competitors within that market. Uh, there would certainly have to be all sorts of concerns with uh, antitrust that would need to be addressed for that to happen. But if you could start to figure it out with, pay with, with different payers that have the same population, then I think it would be easier to start to expand it to those that have slightly different populations and ultimately with those that have very different populations with that alignment. So that's where I think there could be more opportunity is to uh, to focus on the common patient populations and try to build it from the ground up, starting with that. 
Well, David, there's another topic that I also wanted to engage you on, and that's uh, pricing transparency in the private sector market. I mean, you wrote an article in Health Affairs earlier this summer that analyzed and discussed the data and findings from four national payers on how they are supporting health systems and complying with new federal transparency standards. And the negotiated prices or rates that insurers pay to hospitals, physicians, and other healthcare providers has long been shrouded in secrecy. I mean, few people gain access to the data, and those that that do are bound by confidentiality clauses. And with healthcare expenditures as the number one reason for personal bankruptcy in our country, I mean, this lack of transparency is antithetical to the value movement because it irreparably harms the consumer, i.e. the patient. Transparency in hospital pricing, I mean, it isn't just about revealing costs. It's about empowering patients with the knowledge and confidence to make informed decisions about their health care and ensure fairness and drive positive change in the healthcare system. And this new hospital price transparency regulation that recently went into effect will now require hospitals to list their negotiated discounted prices online for all their services. Hospitals are required to publish a user-friendly display of their prices for 500 specific shoppable services that include CT scans, MRIs, uh, blood tests, some elective procedures, and insurers are going to be required to create consumer-facing tools that include out-of-pocket estimates and total prices of care. And additionally, insurers are required to release machine-readable files with all the negotiated rates. So, you know, David, I wanted to see if you could provide our listeners with what you learned from your research that you conducted on how the commercial payers are complying with these new transparency requirements. And overall, I'd also love to hear your thoughts about how transparency fits into the value-based care equation. I mean, if we continue to lack the price transparency needed to fully unleash consumerism and healthcare, I mean, how will that ultimately impact the value movement in the long term? Yeah, it's something that I've spent a lot of time recently on and something that I'm very excited about. For as long as I've been in healthcare, I've wanted to understand prices and how that impacts both the quality of care and the outcomes and all of the competitive dynamics, because I, I feel strongly that when organizations compete based on price and quality, the quality goes up and the prices go down. And you see that, for example, in consumer electronics. The quality of a cell phone that we have today is orders of magnitude better than the best possible cell phone a decade ago, um, and yet it is drastically cheaper at, at the same time. On the healthcare side, we have not seen significant improvements in quality or cost and anything that uh, at the scale that you see in other industries. And I think a lot of it is because people do not compete on cost or quality right now. So as you mentioned, the, the government is now requiring organizations to release negotiated rate data. And this started in the Trump administration, is continuing with the Biden administration. And there's three different ways that they have done that. One is for hospitals, and that began a couple of years ago where hospitals had to release their information. And there have been varying levels of, of quality of data that's come from that. And, but it's all about just the hospital component. The next one is the shoppable services. And this is where insurers are required to release the, um, the different prices that would be paid and also adjust for likely out-of-pocket costs. So you log into your health insurer's uh, website, and then it will know what your co-pays and deductibles and everything is. And then you would be able to say, this is the difference cost, both the total cost. For example, if I went and changed my primary care provider, if I went to 
position A, it's going to cost me $100 or it's going to cost $100 total and I'm going to pay $20 out of pocket. But if I go to provider B, it's going to cost $80 total and I'll pay $15 out of pocket, whatever those numbers may be. And the third one, which is the one that I've spent the most time with, is looking at the insurers required to release data for all negotiated rates. And why this is important is it doesn't include just the hospitals, but it also includes physician and other services as well. And some pharmaceutical costs go into that as well. And what it does is allow us for the very first time to look at the variation in prices, start to look at the uh, the costs and the outcomes that are associated with some of those, and also understand competitive dynamics that are at play. Now, as I've spent some time with this data over the past year, a few big things. First is it is uh, very early on as insurers are putting out this data. And with it being early on, there are some major caveats. One of those is that data itself um, is messy. And I've seen lots of things that are obvious problems and issues with the data. Um, and so it's not clean. Second issue is that it is very hard to work with. Some of these network data can be terabytes in size. And when you scale that over thousands of networks, you have petabytes worth of data. And so just being able to identify which ones are the most relevant is a challenge. And so it's not for the faint of heart, certainly not for individual consumers, but it is something that researchers and companies are starting to look at and starting to uh, extract the data in a way that can ultimately be more useful for people down the road. A third major challenge with this is that the data does not always align with those that are providing those services. For example, there might be a psychiatrist that has a billable rate for doing a heart transplant. Now, you know that psychiatrists are never going to do heart transplants, but they might have a rate and it might be a crazy rate, but it's an irrelevant rate that's there. And so there's a lot of data that doesn't yet uh, match up clearly to the types of services that the providers are actually conducting. And so with all of those limitations and recognizing that some of the data is obviously wrong and there's certainly issues with it, over the past year, the quality has started to improve. The payers are getting better at this and there are vendors that are helping to generate the data. And we're starting to be able to look at um, some of these variations that are there. So uh, done a number of studies, one that is not yet published, but what we were looking at was market share. And uh, one thing was just how much does market share impact what your negotiated rates are? And so what we found is that a health system within a market using metropolitan areas as our market, a 1% larger market share was associated with approximately $100 more of uh, payment for any admission to the hospital. That means that all else being equal, a hospital system that has 10% higher market share would it should expect $1,000 more in payment for the exact same service as a hospital that has the, the lower market share. And so that's just the tip of the iceberg of the types of studies that we'll be able to look at. But it's a fascinating data set. It's hard to work with, but uh, it's improving with time. And I expect that over time, it will start to influence things. First of all, it will be used for negotiations because informed negotiations between payers and providers uh, will certainly drive changes in, in how much people are paid. And, and some of those things, my hope is that in the aggregate, it will lead to lower prices, though there's certainly the risk that it could raise or uh, lead to higher prices over time. The second side is that I really do think 
it will be able to be used to drive care toward better quality, lower priced providers. Now, I'm pretty skeptical that this will happen at the individual level, just with the experience with value-based insurance design and how few providers and consumers actually use that. But at the business level, I think that there will be more and more businesses that will want to have access to this information, and they'll start to identify networks based on the likely costs um, that are associated with that. And so I think that over time, we will start to see the both employers as well as other purchasers start to leverage the data to direct people towards the best quality and the lowest cost providers, hopefully driving competition in that sphere as well. Well, David, this has been an incredible conversation. And I, I wanted to ask you one more thing as we wrap up. I mean, uh, as our you and our listeners know, there's been an announcement for a new advanced payment model, Making Care Primary, and that's the new primary care model. And that was announced by CMS to improve access and quality by promoting value-based care with an emphasis on providers that lack experience with alternative reimbursement arrangements. And the Making Care Primary model seeks to support Medicare and Medicaid providers, including FQHCs, Indian health service providers, small physician practices and rural providers, and transitioning to value-based care. And when the initiative takes effect in July of 2024, participating providers will qualify for enhanced reimbursements to shift from fee-for-service to uh, a, an accountable care model that has better coordination and care management. So David, as someone who's intently focused on following the payment model landscape, I just wanted to get your quick take on making care primary. I mean, based on what we know now at the, mo at the moment, uh, do you think this model will have the potential to catalyze more PCP adoption and value-based care over the next few years? I do. Um, I think this is an example of how CMS is trying to create more programs, both so they can learn from them, as well as just give more opportunities for people that um, may not be as comfortable with the existing models that they could go with some of these. I think there's a couple of things that I think stand out to me at this. The first is the length of the program. So it's from the get-go expected to be a 10-year, 10 10-and-a-half-year 10 model which I think is really important because very rarely are you able to see the necessary changes either at the organization or with the population within the traditional 12-month timeframe. You need multiple years. And so if you think about this as not just a election cycle, but a decade-long transformation, it gives people a very different perspective that goes in there. The next thing that I think is really important is that there are different tracks within it with the idea that, that organizations would move up the tracks. Um, and I think this is CMS's way of getting people in with a lower risk and then kind of making it a sticky model, getting them incentivized and helping them to move towards those higher risk tracks over time. Obviously, we'll see where people end up um, and who applies. And so we'll see what the receptivity in the market is. But I do think this is a good example of another approach to trying to move value. And we certainly are going to need more of these if we're going to achieve the CMS goal of getting all patients under these contracts. Well, thanks for that update, David. And just I, I appreciate this uh, amazing overview of the accountable care landscape. I, every time I talk to you, I learn something new. I, I know our listeners are really going to learn and appreciate uh, from your uh, deep insights on the value movement. Thanks again for joining us this week on the Race to Value. It's so great to finally have you on the show. Thanks, Eric. I really appreciate it. And thanks for having me on.